new series this morning. Uh, we're going to be going through the book of Mark. It's called The Essential Gospel. And if you didn't receive one of these, if you want, this is just uh, the book of Mark is all it is. And on the inside, it has a page of scripture and then a page for note-taking. So for every page of scripture, there's a page for taking notes. Uh, we just want you to have these if you want one so that you can go through and start marking things up, circling things, going along with it, reading throughout the week, taking it to your groups, all of that kind of stuff. Because I believe that when we go through scripture and really digest it, not just read it, but really try to like, how does this apply to my life? How does this change me? God, would you make scripture come alive to me? That it actually does that and it will change your life in ways that you can't even imagine. And so we have those available for you. If you don't have one, uh, you can just raise your hand right now and Sybil, she's got some and, and she'll hand those out to you if any of you need them. And uh, if not, that's cool. We have lots of them. You can grab one after service. Anyways, what Mark does is it's actually the first of the Gospels that was written. Uh, it's not the first one in your New Testament, Matthew is, but Mark's Gospel was written somewhere around 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus is what we think. And the way that Mark approaches it is he just goes through pretty quickly. When you read Luke, it's, uh, you know, he's a doctor, so he's really diving in and he's doing an investigative account of the life and teachings and works of Jesus. Mark is more concerned about just giving you the essentials of the faith, the essential teachings and works and miracles of Jesus. And it was actually what a lot of the other writers used to base their Gospels off of and to make sure that everything lined up and matched up. So as we go through it, it's pretty quick. He cuts out a lot of the stuff that other people have in their Gospels. But as we go through it, I think that we'll really see what are the essentials that we need to understand about Jesus and the life that he lived. And so the way Mark starts it out, in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm actually just going to teach, I just wrote my notes in there this week, circled things and highlighted things. So if I bomb this, I'm going back to using notes again. Uh, but we'll see how it goes this week. But it says, 1-1, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This, what Mark's doing as he's starting this out is right in verse 1, the way that he begins this, he doesn't start with the genealogies like some of the other ones do. He starts out right with the baptism of Jesus, setting the stage for it. And this is how he begins. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When he says beginning, uh, he's, what he's trying to do is to draw on the fact that this is scripture, that this is tied in with everything that's been happening in the Bible. When we read Genesis, it's in the beginning. What Mark's trying to do is to tie in with that idea of what we see happening with Jesus isn't uh, an aberration, but it's something that is tied in going all the way back to Genesis 1-1, that Jesus is a part of this big story uh, that God's been telling and that he's been working out in human history. And then he says this is the gospel, and the beginning, this is the beginning of the gospel. 
And the word gospel was a word that was used a lot in the Roman Empire who were the, the ruling and occupying force at the time that this is being written in Jerusalem. And what it means, the gospel, is that it means it's a joyous tiding. It's good news. So what would happen is a, an emperor would have a birthday, and so there would be the gospel. There would be someone who would come, and they would proclaim that this is Emperor Claudius's birthday. And the idea is that Claudius is such an important person, and that all of human history has been changed by the fact that Emperor Claudius was born, that you have a new reality that you live out of. It's a good thing that Claudius was born. Or when Claudius took power, it would have been the proclamation going around with the town crier saying, good news, everybody. Claudius has conquered the world. You are now a loyal subject of Claudius. It is such an honorable thing that has come to you. You should be happy and you should rejoice about it. Now, nobody actually did. Uh, like, nobody's happy whenever you get conquered and when all of your people are deposed. But what they're trying to do is to make it sound like it's something that's good that's happened to you that has changed your destiny and changed your reality. What Mark is saying is that the fact that Jesus is, is good news. That there's a joyous tiding that is being proclaimed now by him. And what he's saying is that something so important has happened that it has changed your reality. This is the language that he's using that the people who are listening would have understood. And it's not just any gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That your life is forever changed by the joyous tidings that come from the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Everything about your life now changes because of who he is, because of what it is that he's done. Your reality, your future, everything about the world at large is completely different because of Jesus. Because Jesus isn't just any other person. He says that he is the son of God. He starts right out by making this claim. That Jesus isn't a good man, that he's not a prophet, that he's not a wise rabbi or teacher. He is all of those things, but he's so much more. Is that It says that he is the son of God. There are some really sloppy scholars out there who say Jesus never claimed to be the son of God or that Christians never claimed that, that he was just a normal man. Like They have completely missed Mark 1.1 and so many other passages. Jesus isn't like us. Jesus is the son of God and he's come to us. And now, the, the setting for this that Mark takes us to is he starts out the story not in Bethlehem and the manger and all of that stuff, but he actually takes us out to the wilderness and he takes us to the Jordan River. And for us, uh, we don't understand the significance of why is it that you would start at the Jordan River, but for every person who's a Jew that's reading this, the Jordan River is something that is extremely significant to them, and it ties in with their whole history. It ties in with what it is that Jesus has been doing inside of them. And so I'm just going to spend today doing a real brief history, looking at the time, a real brief history of, of what this means for the people who are hearing this good news that Jesus, the Son of God, is here. And it goes all the way back to the garden. When God created in, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, it says he creates a world that's perfect, that's without sin, that he creates Adam and Eve who are in this, who are his image bearers. And it says that he has intimate relationship with them. That in the evening, in the cool of the evening, that God comes and he walks with them and he talks with them. That this is the kind of relationship that humanity was always created to experience with God. Not a God who's separate from us, not a God who's far from us or that we have to wonder about, but God who walks with us, God who talks with us, God who is the greatest reality in our existence that we could never deny and that we could never question. But what happens 
is sin comes into that relationship. Is that when, when we rebelled, what happened when, you know, the whole story, like, hey, don't eat the fruit of the tree or else you'll surely die. And Satan's like, you won't die. You'll become like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. So I want you to define your own truth and your own reality. I want you to do what God does. And that sounds really good to us. So Adam and Eve sin, and they die, but they didn't realize it because the great death that they encountered the moment that they sinned was that their relationship with God was broken in the way that they were always supposed to experience it. So now instead of walking in the garden in the cool of the evening with God when he talks to them, after they sin and shame comes on them because of their sin, it says that God, they hear him coming, walking in the garden like he does every single day to spend time with them. And when they hear him come, it says that they hide from him. Never before have they had guilt or shame because never before have they had sin. They just enjoyed relationship with God. He was their source of life. He was their source of understanding. He was everything to them. That's the way that we were created to be. But when sin comes into the relationship, now instead of having that intimacy and connection and that drawing to God of, God, I can't wait to be with you, now what happens is they start running and they start hiding from God. It says they hear his voice and they hide behind some bushes like God doesn't know where you are. And he says, where are you? And God didn't say that because he wondered. He said that because he wanted them to think about what it was that they were doing. Sin destroyed the relationship that we had with God. Completely broke it. Now we have people who have been bent by sin. We can't be in the presence of a holy, a perfect, and a just God. And so it says that they're sent out of the garden. And the garden that's symbolic, that's heaven. That's existing with God. That's heaven and earth. The two realities combined into one existence. But we're, we're kicked out of that because of our sinfulness. But even in doing that, God gives this promise. He says that one day I'm going to restore everything. Everything that you broke, everything that has been destroyed by sin, I'm going to come and I'm going to restore it. I promise you that it's going to be like this again. You're going to know me again. You're going to have relationship with me again. What you broke, one day I'm going to restore. And God begins to do that with one man named Abraham. He comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all the nations through you, speaking to eventually a Messiah is going to come. He blesses Abraham. He turns into a great family. The family moves to the land of Egypt. In Egypt, they begin to prosper and flourish so much that the Egyptians become scared of them. And they actually turn them into slaves so that they can keep them under their control. For 400 years, the people of God, the people who had this promise of restoration, they're living as slaves who are horribly oppressed. God, where is your promise? You said you were going to do all of these things. Life is worse than it's ever been before. But God still, he's working out his plan. He's working out the promise that he made to humanity to restore everything. And he raises up a man named Moses. And Moses comes, and after 400 years of oppression and slavery in the land of Egypt, this one man, supernaturally empowered by God, is able to go before Pharaoh. And you've seen the movie. He says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And God says, yes. And eventually, through supernatural signs and wonders, God leads the, what was one man that turned into about 72 people, and they moved to Egypt. Now over 400 years have turned into two to three million people that are now exiting the land of Egypt and being led into the land of promise for them. Going from being slaves to being those who will have their own land that God is providing for them. They get out of the land of Egypt and they get out into the desert. 
They're excited. God, he's coming. He's doing it. He's restoring. He's, God's going to use Moses to do this. It says they come up to Mount Sinai. Some say it's Mount Horeb. Uh, we really don't know. We know it's the same mountain, but some people say one side was called Mount Sinai, one was called Mount Horeb, or there was two peaks on the mountain. Not important. But they come to this place where God says, now I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to appear to you. So the whole nation of Israel, they're gathered around this mountain. And it says that God comes, like this, this cloud of God's presence comes to the mountain. It says like the sound of a horn, and there's lightning and flashes and thunder and all of this stuff going on as the glory, as the presence of the good, the holy, pure, just God comes to manifest himself before his people. And he comes to speak to them, but what happens is the people become scared. Once again, just like, when they heard, just like when Adam and Eve heard God in the garden coming and speaking to them, they ran away and they hid because of their own sinfulness. Well, now God comes again to speak, to appear to them, to be with his people. He says, my plan is to dwell amongst you, is to be your God and for you to be my people, to create this family where you're not distant from me, you're not separated from me, but you live and you exist, you dwell with me, and you hear my voice speaking to you. This is what God's coming to restore for the people of Israel after he's led them out of the slavery in Egypt. But the people still have one problem. There's still sin infecting their hearts. And that sinfulness and the shame and the guilt of it that caused Adam and Eve to hide from God causes the, the Hebrew people once again to hide from God. When his beauty comes and they hear his voice begin to speak, they're terrified by it because of the sin in their own heart. And they say to Moses, tell God to stop talking to us. Instead, why don't you go and you talk to him and then you tell us what God says and we'll do whatever he says. That wasn't what God wanted. God wanted to come. He wanted to be their God. He wanted them to be his people. He wanted to speak to them. He wanted to dwell with them. But once again, they rejected him because of the problem of sin that was still infecting every single one of our human hearts. So God says, all right. He gives them the law. You don't want to learn from me through my presence or hear my voice speaking to you. You want to hear it through someone else, then okay. And that's what he does is he gives them the law. This is what you have to do. If you want to make yourself acceptable, if you want to try to restore yourself, if you want to try to redeem yourself, this is what it's going to take. If you want to reject me and not have me be the one who restores you, but you want to restore yourself, here's the law. This is what you have to do. And so they get the law. All right, God, we're going to do all of this. No problem. We got this. And then God starts taking them through the wilderness and they come up to the Jordan River, which is the border that leads them into the promised land, the land of Canaan that God had promised to Abraham all these years ago. It says land flowing of milk and honey. And uh, if you're an ancient person, like that's awesome. That means that there's lots of produce and there's lots of agriculture. Like for us today, it'd be a land flowing in sunshine and air conditioning because we live in Michigan. Like that's our promised land. But God leads them up to this place, and they come up to the Jordan River, and they're getting ready to go in. They spent about two weeks in the desert. All right, we're going to go in here. We're getting ready. God's restored us. He's given us the law. Let's go. And, and Moses says, okay, I'm going to send out 12 people. They're going to be spies. They're going to go out into the land, and they're going to look and see what we're coming up against. And so the 12 spies, they go into the land that God has promised them, and then they come back, and they give the report to the people. And they say, Moses, the land is exceedingly great. And they bring back some of the, like, they bring back grapes and different produce from it. Like, look at this is an incredible land that God has led us up to, but there's one problem. There's giants in the land. In fact, they're so big that we look like grasshoppers compared to them. Like, we can't go in. There's no way that we can go into this place that God's called us to. 
There's only two people, it's Joshua and Caleb, who say, look, it's an incredible land. There's some big people that live there right now in some strong cities, but we should go in and take it right now because God is for us. God's going to be the one who provides us for us. Well, the other people, instead of being inspired by their pep speech, they begin to conspire against Moses and say, we need to pick a new leader for ourselves and we need to go back to the land of Egypt. Think about this. They go through, they, hear, they see God in his manifest presence, they hear his voice, all of these miracles and signs and wonders occur, and when they come up to the land of, of promise that God's going to lead them into, they get to the border of that, and they actually say, you know what, let's go back to being slaves again. I know for 400 years our ancestors were crying out to God to deliver us from this, but it would be better if we lived as slaves and if we tried to go and conquer this land and all got killed. Why were there the two different responses? Because the law of God, when you try to justify yourself, when you try to restore yourself and your relationship to God, you can never do it. And the law that God gave you, even though it's perfect, even though it's just, it will never be able to build faith in God for you. The reason why Joshua and Caleb said, let's go into this land at once, was because they weren't living just out of the law. They were living out of pursuing Jesus, and they were living out of relationship with God. That stirred up faith inside of them to say, it's not about us. It's about what God's going to do when we cross this river and delivering his promise to us. But everybody else that was just living out of the law of saying, how do I justify myself? How do I make myself right? How do I restore myself? They didn't have any faith in what God was able to do. They only had faith in what they were able to do. And they knew they couldn't do this thing that God had called them to. So they went back and they said, we want to go back to being slaves. And that's what's always going to happen, is that when you live out of the law of trying to make yourself right, trying to justify yourself, trying to make yourself presentable for God, trying to create your own way through life, you're always going to be living out of the law. Whether it's a law you've created for yourself, a law that the culture has created for you, or even if you're trying to follow the Old Testament law. It'll never lead you to a place of faith in God and what he can do and lead you into the land of promise that he has for you. It'll always cause you to return back to being a slave. Every single time. So God says, all right, you don't want to go in? You don't believe that I can do this for you? All right, I'll give you what it is that you want. And so for 40 years, it says, the entire generation of those who didn't have faith, the entire generation of those who said, God, just give us your law and we'll take it from here, it says that every single one of them died in the wilderness, never able to go in and take hold of the promise that God had for them. And even after Moses dies, because Moses, he was a symbol of the law. Even Moses wasn't able to go over into the land that God had promised. He was able to lead them up to the border of it, to the Jordan River, but he was never able to lead them into it. But after Moses dies, God chooses Joshua to be the new leader. He chooses Joshua to be the one who can take the people into the promise that he has for them because Joshua was the man of faith. And so once again, the people of Israel, they come up to the border, they come up to the Jordan River, and the Jordan's at flood stage, it says, which and it's harvest time, so it's deep, it's flowing fast, they don't have bridges, there's no way to cross it other than to walk right through it. And so they come up to the Jordan River, and God says, for three days, I want you to prepare yourself. And there's a lot of symbolism, three days, and then something miraculous is going to occur. That's looking at the resurrection, the promise we enter into. He says, for three days, get ready, and then what I want you to do is I want the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant, which was the place where God's presence dwelt on the face of the earth, and they're going to walk into that Jordan River that's at flood stage. And so they do that. After three days, they get up there, they consecrate themselves, and they worship Jesus, and they go out there. And the minute their foot hits the waters, it says that the water 
begins to stop up and that it doesn't flow down the stream anymore and the water builds up heading upstream for them all the way to a town called Adam. The water builds up and the entire nation of Israel is able to cross through on dry ground into the land of God's promise for them. The river Jordan was always a symbol of the boundary of God's promise. It was always the thing that kept you from moving into God's promise. It was a thing that had to be crossed through in order for you to be able to move into the promise that God has for you. Now, the Israelite people, they were able to go in and take hold of the land that God had promised them because of faith, because of not the law, but Joshua's faith that led them into the place where God supernaturally moved on their behalf and then provided for them in the land. But even still, sin still infected their hearts, and they began to realize that the restoration they were looking for wasn't from the physical, it wasn't from the material, but the restoration that they really needed was that they needed restoration in their relationship with their God. So here comes Jesus. Jesus comes up to the Jordan River in the wilderness. And it says that he goes into the river, and when he goes into the river, it's not that the water is stopped up, but it says that the heavens are torn open. And the voice of God speaks to his people once again. Jesus was able to take us into the promise that God had given us all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is the one who restores not just the physical, not the material, the things that our hearts have so often gone after, but Jesus is the Messiah who comes to restore our relationship with God. And what Mark is doing is he's actually presenting Jesus as the new Joshua. We see Jesus, he's the new Adam, he's the new Moses, he's the new Joshua, and, he show, and the Bible's always showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prototypes that came before him, but he's able to do so much more. In fact, Joshua... Uh, some of the similarities are unbelievable. If you saw Jesus and Joshua standing together, which never happens, by the way, but if you were to see this and you came up and you said, hey, Jesus, nobody would turn to look at you. You said, hey, Joshua, nobody would turn to look at you because that's the English version of their names. But if you said, hey, Yeshua, they would both turn and look at you. They have the same name. Yeshua was their Hebrew name, which means God saves that was a name that was given to both of them. They were both a people that led into God's promise. They were both a people who came that God used to restore. And what Jesus has restored, that's so much better than anything else. The good news that Mark begins to proclaim to us in the beginning of the book is that the Son of God has come. That the Messiah has come, the one who's able to restore that he stepped into the boundary of your promise, into that barrier that was keeping you from receiving restoration in your relationship with God so that you could hear his voice, so that you could dwell as his people and with him as your God, intimately knowing him, with him being your source of life and connected to him. Jesus came in to make the way for you to be able to go into it. It's so beautiful, too, that when Joshua steps in, the water's backed up to the town called Adam, when Jesus steps into the river, your sins that separated you from God were removed all the way from you right now, all the way back to Adam. Every sin 
for any one of us was all paid for in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the King of all. And he's here today to restore relationship between you and your Heavenly Father. So this is what I want you to know. Number one is that Jesus is here to restore you. That's the good news. That's the gospel. You might be separate from God right now. Uh, maybe you've been trying to follow Jesus, but you've never heard his voice speak to you. You've never been able to move into the promise of restoration and relationship with him. Jesus is here to restore you. It doesn't matter what it is that you've done. It doesn't matter what it is that's been done to you. Jesus removes all of your sin. Everything that was a barrier, Jesus has come. He's paid the price. He's removed it. He silenced the accusations of the enemy. Everything has been done so that you can have relationship with your Father restored to you. What the law couldn't do, Jesus was able to do. You've tried. You know, I, I just got it. If I just get my life right, then God's going to be able to do this. Or, you know, I'll go to church or I'll, I'll get involved. Or, you know what? Like God will be able to use me when I get myself straightened up. That'll never happen. God gave the perfect law to us said, if you want to try to do it on yourself, like, here's the instructions. I'll tell you how to do it yourself. And not a one of us could do it because of sin infecting our heart. So Jesus came to remove the sin, something the law could never do, but only God's grace can do. God came to make it so we don't have to live by the law. He came to restore us by his grace so that now we can know God. Then the second thing, and I'll close with this, is that you are loved by God. I love this in verse 11. This is what God, this is the voice of God restored to his people. This is the first thing that people hear. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. What had Jesus done at this point? He hadn't preached a single sermon. He hadn't performed a single miracle. He hadn't done anything. But God says, I love you. Why? Because you're my son. Well, it goes on to say that I'm well pleased with you. God was pleased with God the son because of his obedience. God is pleased with you when you're obedient to him. But he loves you because you're his son, because you're his daughter, because that's who you were made to be. Before you've done anything for Jesus, before you've even decided that you want to follow after him, what God's saying over you, the voice of God restored to humanity, is I love you. Not because of what you've done, but because you're mine. I love you because you're my son. I love you because you're my daughter. That's the starting place for us. For every single one of us this morning. That's, that can be a hard thing to receive because it's not the way that we work. Every other relationship you have, it's if I do this, then someone's going to approve of me. If I do this, then I'll be able to earn their love and their affection. And we allow that to come in and to infect the way that we think about God is that I have to do this and then God's going to love me. That's not where it starts. It starts with God loves you. 
And because God loves you, then this is going to happen. But the starting place of restoration inside of every one of us is you're my son, you're my daughter, and I love you. And I'm going to restore you. You can know me. You can hear my voice. You can walk with me. Your sins can be forgiven. Everything that separated you from me, it's all removed now through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's all been removed because the plan of God going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and coming into fruition with Jesus walking the face of this earth. The plan of God has been unfolded and has been made known to us. We can know God now. Deeply, intimately, we can experience his love in our life and we can love him. That's the good news that Mark brings us. Would you stand up with me this morning? Take a minute to pray. Just close your eyes and let God speak to you for a moment. Some of you, you've heard this a lot. The story of Jesus isn't new to you. But maybe you've never really understood what it was all about. Maybe you've never understood the love that God has for you. And how he came to restore heaven and earth together. That heaven has been opened that God's kingdom is here, that it's now, and that God is speaking over you that he loves you and that he wants to restore you. Maybe you've never even known what that, the possibility of that restoration, of knowing God, hearing his voice speaking to you, being the recipient of his love and his affection in your life. is This morning, that's the joyous tidings that Mark brings us. God loves you. And he's here to restore you this morning. This morning, if you need restoration in your life, if you need that great revelation of, of God's love for you, maybe this morning he's beginning to speak it to you. You need that restoration of, God, I need to know that you love me. God, would you unclog my ears? Would you open up my eyes so that I can hear and I can see how great your love and your affection is for me? Jesus, I need your restoration inside of my life so that I can know you. Jesus, I need the forgiveness of my sins that you've made available to me so that I can experience the open heaven here and now on this earth. If that's you this morning, you need that kind of restoration in your life. Will you be so bold as to raise your hands as a sign of Jesus, I need your restoration in my life. Jesus, I want you. I want everything that you've made possible for me. Thank you. Thank you for those hands. And church, let's pray this together this morning. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your great love for us. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you have forgiven my sins. I believe that you died and rose again. And from this day forward, I'm following after you. Would you fill me with the Holy Spirit? Give me the ability to hear you speak 
and make me the recipient of your lavish love. Restore me this morning, now and forever. I'm following after you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. That's awesome. Listen, if you prayed that prayer this morning, what's going to happen is Satan's going to come and he's going to tell you, you gotta, there's some kind of law now that has to happen. I'm supposed to have this experience. I'm supposed to have this feeling. I'm supposed to do. That's the law. Don't go back to slavery. Receive by faith what it is that Jesus has done. Receive by faith this new life that God started in your heart this morning. Receive, it's stepping into that water. God, I believe that as I take that step that you're going to stop up the waters and I'm going to move into the land of your promise that you have for me. Jesus is leading you into a land of promise, not by your doing. It doesn't disqualify you when you're driving home and someone cuts you off and you use a word that you shouldn't use. That doesn't disqualify you from the promise of God. He's going to begin a work of restoration in your mind and in your heart. He's going to begin to change you into his likeness, but it won't be because you followed a law to make yourself right. It's going to be because by faith now God's restoring you and he's moving you and he's taking you farther into that relationship and deeper into his love and it's going to change the way that you live your life. Everything about it. But stay connected to Jesus. Stay connected to your Messiah. This is what I tell you to do. You take this next year of your life and you start enjoying that restoration that God's made available for you. You come to Radiant Church every Sunday. God, I want to hear you. God, speak to me. I want to worship you. I want to pray. You, you follow along in the study of Mark with us. You start reading your Bible and praying. Get restored. Allow Jesus to do that inside of your heart. And it's going to change everything about your life. Not by what it is that you've done, but by what Jesus has done for you because of his great love for you. Uh, we're going to take communion this morning. The usher is going to come forward and, and pass out the elements. And we practice open communion here at Radiant Church. The only thing we ask is that uh, what the Bible says, that if you're a believer, if you've made that decision that you're going to bend the knee to Jesus and follow after him, then you're free to take communion with us. But if you haven't, then we just respectfully ask that you just let the elements pass you by because uh, this is something we believe is, is for the family. And uh, Joy's just going to lead us in worship for a minute as this is being passed out. And then we're going to come up, uh, hold on to them, and we'll take it together in just a minute.
Jesus, yes, you we glorify, yes, you we're lifting high, your name we glorify. When Jesus shared his last meal with his disciples, so as he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. We remember that Jesus' body was broken on the cross so that we could be made whole. So as we take the bread this morning, we remember. And Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. As we drink together this morning, we remember that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross for the atonement of our sins that every sin from us all the way back to Adam was paid for on the cross. And now we're pure and holy and blameless before our Father. We remember. Jesus, thank you for what it is that you've done. Jesus, we celebrate with all creation the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's come to restore all creation, all humanity, all of this world to you. Thank you for your restoration, Jesus. Continue to work out restoration in every one of our hearts, Jesus. Make us back the way that we were always supposed to have been. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth and in our hearts as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. The usher's going to pass around a bucket. You can drop your cups in there. Uh, and here's what I'm going to do. I call my prayer partners forward. They're going to be in the front on the outside here. If there's anything we can pray for you about, uh, we would love to pray with you uh, absolutely anything at all. We see God move miraculously in response to the prayers of his people all the time. And here's another thing I'd ask you. If today you made a decision to follow after Jesus, could you text, I decided to 97,000? And what it does, it gives us the opportunity to shoot you a text back. We just want to be able to send you a book that we have called 10 Steps Towards Christ by Jimmy Evans. Uh, we want to get that to you so it's a, a good aid in helping you get going in this life of following after Jesus. It also gives us an opportunity uh, to connect with you, see if there, you want to grab a coffee, talk to us, tell us your story, whatever it might be. But we want to help you along this new journey that you've made. So you can text, I decided to 97,000 or come forward and let one of us pray for you, encourage you. But uh, you know, let us know, because we want to help in this new life that you've entered into with Jesus. Remember, uh, we have Marriage Exo Conference coming up next Saturday. Uh, sign up for that, radiant82.com or at Guest Central. And the night of worship here tonight at 6.30 p.m. Be here. We're going to worship Jesus. God bless. We'll see you soon. <laughs>